Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of On Air with the Chair. As always, I'm Captain Nick James, your MEC chairman, and joining me today, and I'm, I, I got to say, I'm really excited about this, is our Vice President of Flight Operations, Russ Elander. I've had the privilege of working with Russ uh, for several years in this role, and I have to tell you, he is a top-notch individual. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from him and talking about where Endeavor is at today and the future of our airline. Um, I'd also like to take just a moment to congratulate Peter Ruhlman on becoming our comms committee chairman. Uh, Peter has been on the comms committee for several years, and over that time, he has developed an excellent skill set, which has allowed him to transition into the role at, of chairman as Rob Berger uh, departed for, well, what we'll call Purple Skies since he went over to uh, FedEx. Um, so congratulations, uh, Peter, on becoming the comms committee chairman. Thank you for all of your hard work. It is a position that requires a lot of volunteerism, and we do appreciate you stepping up into that role. Um, at the end of the, today's podcast, we'll be answering a pilot question from the front line. And as always, remember, if you have a question or an idea for a topic to address on the show, please email edvonair at alpa.org. That's edvonair at alpa.org. If we choose your topic or your question, we will send you a gift from the MEC. So we always start off the podcast with a what's new section. So let's talk about something that is somewhat new at Endeavor and then some upcoming events. Uh, the first thing that is somewhat new is our flow agreement. And there's a couple of aspects about our flow agreement um, as questions have rolled in over the last several weeks that I'd like to address. First of all, while we are very excited about this flow agreement, we understand it is not a perfect deal. And there's a couple of components that uh, make it not a perfect deal. First and foremost, we understand that we're not in control of our own destiny. This is tied to an arbitration uh, at the Delta level that we are not in, obviously, full control of. And this program also does not apply for new hires. And when we think about progression for all, we do mean it is progression for all. And therefore, as I've stated before in several other communications, that's why this program is going to continue. That's why the campaign is going to continue. Some people have asked questions, well, if you didn't meet those two goals, why, why accept the deal? Well, when you're trying to establish a new program, something that has never been done at a carrier, and, and you're trying to break down that wall and break down that barrier, sometimes getting it in the form and fashion that best serves your strategic, strategic interests isn't always available right away. And strategically and tactically, it makes sense to take what is available, establish that program, put that stake in the ground, and look for a future opportunity to improve it. It is one of the bedrock principles that has served this MEC and this negotiating committee very, very well. It's one of the reasons that we have over 125 letters of agreement signed in a 10-year period. Um, so it is important to understand that the campaign is still going to continue. If you would like a progression for all lanyard or one of our new badge backers, please fill out the form on the EDV MEC website and we'll send one to you very, very quickly. Now, speaking about this, this arbitration, um, by the time you hear the podcast, because right now it is July 14th, so by the time you listen to it, the Delta arbitration will be complete as those dates are July 13th through the 15th. We likely won't know the arbitrator's decision until towards the end of August, if not maybe even later. But depending upon the arbitrator's decision, we do have contingency plans for either outcome, whether the flow agreement stays intact or if the flow agreement ends up ceasing to exist, we do have a plan on how to engage different parties at various levels to once again capture our number one strategic objective. One of the things that's working in favor for us uh, right now, even just as we're in the early portions of coming out of the pandemic, is our attrition numbers. In May, we saw 23 pilots leave for other airlines. In June, we saw 27. And again, as of the recording of this podcast on July 14th, we are on pace to exceed that and be in the 30s in July. And we haven't even hit our first flow month, which is going to guarantee us an additional 20 pilots uh, off of our list in those months. So that is one of the ways that we can gain some leverage in negotiations is having some of these outsized attrition numbers and opportunities at, at other airlines. We're seeing a tremendous amount of pilots, especially first officers, getting picked up by United, but they by far aren't the only ones. We're actually already starting to see some pilots 
move to the American property. We haven't seen that necessarily before in, in any meaningful numbers. And then, of course, there's always the spirit, the jet blues and the frontiers. There are always those carriers that are hiring, and we see steady streams of pilots heading, uh, heading that way. Some other questions uh, from the pilots in regards to the flow is, what do I have to do with my application and my logbook? How up-to-date does it need to be? How complete does it need to be? And, you know, I understand the questions because usually a strong application is, is going to get noticed and it's going to get pulled and scored for an interview, and that is going to be your in. But in this case, you don't necessarily need a strong application because we've already secured the job for you. But the recommendation from the MEC is that you make sure that you have a very well put, thorough application. And I even recommend getting a professional review done on it and that you have an up-to-date logbook. You can always get your flight times from training records at Endeavor. And Flicka also allows you for a small fee to be able to go back and pull your uh, flight times as well. There are a plethora of companies out there that will also update your logbook for you. Obviously, there's going to be a charge for that. But remember that your logbook and your application is still going to be the first look that Delta has to you as an employee and as a pilot. And while the job may be secured for you, your success at Delta is 100% based upon your effort. And this application and logbook is really kind of that first look into that effort. So we recommend that you spend the requisite amount of time, money, and resources putting together as strong of a package as you possibly can to represent not just yourself, but every Endeavor pilot that will come after you. Now, moving past the flow negotiations, what else is on the horizon as far as negotiations are concerned? Well, one of the things that we're working with the company on, and we've probably we're about 95% of the way there, is something called the Contract Clarifications LOA. There's been a lot of pilots over the years that have read the JCBA, but the JCBA doesn't necessarily have the negotiator's notes or the negotiated intent or any type of grievance settlements or past practice in it. And so I understand why it can be very confusing in certain sections um, for the average line pilot when they read, especially Section 25. And so what we've been doing is we've been working with the company over the last few months to uh, memorialize and codify in writing and in examples that will be incorporated into the JCBA many, many of these um, areas of the, the JCBA that may not be extremely clear. And so look for that to come out uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Once we're done with that, we're going to move into an RGS to LMS negotiation where the company wants to move from the WebEx style of recurrent ground school and into a full LMS. So all of your modules that you would currently be covering with an instructor in RGS now would be covered in an LMS uh, format. Right now, one of our concerns is that LMS is only paid on a one for two basis. So at least in terms of what we're looking for in this transition, we definitely want to see it on a one to one basis because these modules will now be done on your time off rather than done through the RGS system. Uh, and then the last one, once we get through that, is the ASAP FOCA crosstalk and an enhancement to the fatigue program. Uh, our safety teams, both uh, led by Todd Tilbury on the company side and by Vaughn DeHart on the ALPA side, have been working on an ASAP FOCA crosstalk program for consideration by the MEC and the pilot group, along with some fatigue enhancements. So we hope to have all three of those wrapped up uh, before the end of the year. Uh, in other news, uh, we have a... or likely by the time this is released, had a pub event in Detroit. That was going to be our second one of the year, but we will have one final one to round out our Pilot Unity building events, and that will be on September 23rd here in Minneapolis at a Twins game. And like I said, that will wrap up the series of pub events for this year, but we will be looking to do more uh, in 2022. All right, everyone, as I said at the beginning of the show, we had a we have a very special guest joining us today, and that is the VP of Flight Operations, Russ Elander. As I've said before, I had the privilege to work with Russ for going on, what, gosh, now, six, seven, eight years mm -hmm. in, in various roles and capacities, and I got to tell you, he is a top-notch individual from top to bottom, so I'm excited to have him on the show. Russ, welcome to On Air with the Chair. Thanks, Nick. I'm, I can't begin to tell you how happy I am that you invited me and that I'm here today, so... Thank you so much. I look forward to talking with you today as well as allowing the pals to hear what we have to say. Absolutely. So even though you have a very recognizable name, Russ, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your your background, and what your hobby and interests are? All right. Well, um, my hobbies and interests vary from 
from month to month and from week to week. But for the most part, my background has always been aviation. My father spent 35 years working for American Airlines. I spent my first 10 working there. Then I worked for Midway Airlines for a while, and then we started our own 121 carrier in Nashville, Tennessee. And then I came to Pinnacle, um, and I've been been with Endeavor since then. I took over Flight Ops in 2013 when we moved here. Um, didn't know a great deal about flight operations, but um, I knew we had pilots out there that had just gone through bankruptcy, a tough time, um, took huge pay cuts, and I knew that uh, they needed someone who uh, would listen, um, not make promises, but more or less walk the walk versus talking the talk. And um, that's some of the, one of the things I pride myself and my entire team of doing. Um, so that's really the background. My hobbies, uh, geez, mainly kids. I mean, I have eight now with stepkids included. So uh, anywhere from 11 years old up to uh, 33. So that'll that'll tell you there's quite a range there. I love to bass fish. I have a have a bass boat. So I do a lot of bass fishing down in North Carolina where, my, where I'm from and where my family's from. So that's what I do in my free time. Awesome, Russ. So, you know, you've been the VP of Flight Operations here at Endeavor since 2013. You've had a heck of a run, lots of really, really good results from that. But let's talk about what's going on right now. Um, we have gotten through this pandemic in probably the best possible position that we can get through it, especially from the association's perspective. Uh, being able to navigate 90% of our flying evaporating overnight without taking involuntary concessions or losing pilots has positioned and poised us to be a, a major player and to be able to help Delta throughout the, the backside of this recovery because I think everybody knows that this industry has turned a corner and turned it faster than anybody really anticipated. Um, um, and what we've seen is the hiring spigot get turned on and turned on in volumes that I don't think really anyone, including management, really anticipated that we would be at. So why don't we talk about what the state of hiring is right now, um, what we look for in the next six to 12 months, and what kind of quality of candidates and the volume that you're getting? Nick, what I'd like to do, though, is first talk about the pandemic sure. and just talk to our pilots for a second. Um, the pandemic was tough on everyone, and I'd be real remiss if I didn't reach out and thank all of our pilots. Um, because throughout the entire pandemic, they were out there flying the front lines where the pandemic was, where the sickness was, and they didn't, they did it pridefully and professionally. And I have to sincerely just thank them because we can't lose sight of the fact that a lot of us were in our offices, at home, whatever, but our pilots, flight attendants, mechanics were on the front lines during this entire pandemic. So my hats go off to all of you. No pun intended, Nick. I know I know you're <laughs> fury on hats, but um, no, no pun intended. But honest, honestly, um, I am so privileged to work and lead probably the best group of pilots in the entire industry. And I mean that sincerely and, and honestly. Yeah, very well said, Russ, and thank you. Um, so let's talk about what's going on. I mean, the pandemic, literally, I mean, we spent the last half of, of 2020 literally tearing down our training department. I mean, as you know, we sent half of our, our FTIs back to the line. Um, we didn't have any training events. I mean, the schoolhouse was closed. All we had was CQ. There was some, some, there, there was some uh, FA relief on CQs, allowing us to push them down the road. Um, we took advantage of all that, mainly because we didn't want people sitting in the classroom. Delta had some very minuscule advanced bookings early on this year, and it really let, let, let some concern that we may not need to come back as fast as we thought we would. Um, so there was a lot of concern on cash reserve and making sure we didn't spend money we didn't need to. Um, and then all of a sudden the floodgates opened. To be honest with you, we start, saw advanced bookings double within two weeks in April. Wow. Um, and Delta has been asking us for the last three months to fly more block hours than we can. We have literally turned down thousands of block hours because we just don't have the we don't have the ability to fly them today with the crew members. You know, utilization, I don't need to tell all of you out there, but, you know, if you're on the 200 line, you'd fly a flight and then sit for three hours and fly another flight. Those days are behind us now. I think that's good because I think you'd rather be flying than you would be sitting. Um, but uh, it also puts us in a, in a challenge because the whole industry right now is absolutely starved for training pilots. Um, it's, it's a race to the top now. It's, it's how quick can everybody get back into the levels they were. And realistically, if, if we take a look at the block hours we were flying pre-COVID, um, to, it's going to take us to summer 22 to get back to that level of block hours. Unfortunately, um, we also have to continue to maintain. And Russ, let me interrupt you. Yeah, please. To, to get back to that summer of 2022 block hours, you're you're not talking about the demand that's being asked of us as Delta. You're talking about being able to have the crew members in the right positions to meet that demand. Yes, 
Okay. Yes, the de- Delta would have the demand today if we could if we could put the crew members in the right positions in the right locations and the right numbers. To be honest with you, so the demand's already there, um, but we've gone through and built plan after plan after plan um, to identify how quick we could get back to about ninety five percent of where we were pre COVID, and that's we're looking at June of twenty two to get there, and that's taking into account attrition. Attrition is real important. Um, we also need need attrition. We need people to flow to Delta um, to allow opportunities for other pilots, and it also increases um, the opportunity for or interest for people coming here. Um, so we've really been focusing on building the training department. Um, Pre-COVID, we had 94 FTIs. When we get by by January, we'll have 124 FTIs. So that's about a 25% increase in capacity of FTIs. We've also done some things to improve. Um, our ability to train FTIs, where we are bringing in as many non-seniority lists, which is we'd like to be around 25, 30% on that on that front, um, because we know we, we, we're susceptible to losing some APDs and PCPs through the flow process. So we're already developing, and we're, we're developing eight PCPs right now. And isn't it hard to, or doesn't it take a, a little bit longer to develop that non-seniority list instructor than it does a seniority list instructor? Plus, I, I believe when we last spoke about it, I thought you had said that you only had about 12 non-seniority list instructors because there's such a demand for them out of all the airlines, they're tough to find. Yeah, and we're actually reevaluating what the pay is for non-seniority because they are, there is a demand for all airlines right now. Um, and we've been even reaching out to our retirees over the last five years, seeing if any of them, them are interested, as well as we got have a, a retiree list from Delta early outs. Um, and we've been reaching out and calling them, too, to identify non-seniority. But the truth is, you pointed out, Nick, the training footprint for non-seniority is, let me put it this way, it's, 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 the, it's the 60 days to do ground school and everything that you would on a new hire. Then you can add a whole other training footprint to it. Mm-hmm. So it's about six months to seven months to get a non-seniority um, FTI qualified, where I can take, and I know it, it's, it's sort of like what comes first, a chicken or the egg, but you know, I can take a seniority list pilot and qualify them to do PTs and MTs, PTs in 30 days, MTs in another 20 days. So in 50 days, I can have a seniority list pilot teaching everything except my LOSs and my LOEs and my PV and my M- MV, obviously. But that that's more than 50% of my training. So I need pilots, but I also I need to I need to build the schoolhouse um, to maintain a long term product here at Endeavor to ensure our long term survival. So the focus now has got to be pulling people in, even though I need them to fly hours. So we've been turning down block hours to develop FTIs and bring more people in the training house. Sure. And developing FTIs, though, that's only part of the equation to getting somebody successfully through the schoolhouse. Usually the, the largest bottleneck isn't bodies. It's usually equipment. And by equipment, we mean sims. And I know that last time we tried to hire 60 pilots a month prior to the pandemic, um, you know, the wheels kind of fell off. Um, our new hire footprint ballooned drastically to I think it was over 120 days. And I know that that's not something that, that is sustainable. So what are we doing on the sim side of it to try to unclog that bottleneck? Let's um let's go back to then. Okay. That's a great question, Nick. If you go back to the the 60 number, that was never 60 in one particular aircraft. And um, that would have been 40 max in the 920 and the 200. So our really max max ability on the dual class was 40 a month. Um, we had four and a half sims back then. Um, right now, we have contracted um, up to eight and a half sims right now. We don't have them here yet, but we have signed up for, re-signed up for the Phoenix 900 sim is now ours. The 200 in Phoenix is ours. We have three 900s here already. We have one convertible here, and we have a 200 sim here. We have one on a boat right now coming from Amsterdam. Some of the pilots that have been here a while might remember we did training in Amsterdam uh, several years ago, but I think it was 2014, maybe 2015, where we actually sent pilots to Amsterdam. That is a another convertible sim. That's on its way here on a boat. It should arrive here by August 1st. It should be up and running. It's going to take the compass spot at CAE. It should be up and running sometime by, I would say, around the 1st of September. We'd like to have it for the 1st of September, but the National Sim Team certification date, the first one we were given, was September 21st. So we should sign, have that one done by then. In addition, we also have... Um, a half a sim in Canada, in, in Montreal, or Toronto, I'm sorry, in Toronto that we have. That's a convertible we can use as a half nine or a half um, two, but that time's available to us. We haven't scheduled any of that time yet because there's still some COVID restrictions going in out of Canada that don't make it real productive for us to do so. But eventually in the fall, we'll be using that. We'll have a total of eight and a half sims. Um, six and a half, 900 sims available and two 200 sims. 
So while we're on the topic of FTIs and SIMs and bringing pilots into training, um, something that was new that we saw come out of the pandemic was this hands-on training, this hot training. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about why all of a sudden we had to do this as a separate event and what the company's plan is to incorporate this into the current training footprint? Yeah, one of the one of the all of you have been to our room in uh, in in the hangar. It's it's uh, it's less than an optimal location, but one of the things that we did by um by agreeing to buy the uh, the two hundred sim in in and the nine hundred sim in Phoenix, the time on that for two years is CAE agreed to build us a door trainer. So we actually had engineering go out and take doors off some some aircraft. We bought a nine hundred door, um, but we took a two hundred door and. And, and catering door off a plane in the desert and shipped them all overseas to Europe where they're building a new cabin door trainer for us. That will be at CAE. So the long-term plan is we'll do, we'll do the CQ at home, you know, learning management system. It'll all be CBT. And then when a person comes in for their annual SIM trip, they'll also be right there where the door trainer is. They'll come into CAE, do their CQ, their SIM stuff, and then be able to do their hot training as well right in the room. If anyone's been in the large room that's CAE, um, that's where Compass used to have their slide and, and everything else in there and their door trainers, um, and that's where ours is going. We're also putting in a brand-new cabin trainer. In-flight's buying a cabin trainer, so we'll have a cabin trainer in that facility as well. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, I think it's uh, going to be very convenient for our pilots because it's a one-stop shop. Yep. And the I whole think goal that- is to limit – I mean, let's be honest, pilots um, – Training is a requirement. They mm-hmm. have to come to training, but they don't always like come to training. So if we can limit the travel time and the amount of times they have to come to training and make it more efficient, it'll make them happy and it'll also give us some efficiency on the company side. Awesome. Well, you know, we started off this this conversation with the hiring plans of Endeavor, and that kind of led us into the, this training talk. But let's kind of step back into the hiring plans of Endeavor because, I mean, I think the pilots are going to want to know, how many pilots a month do you want to put into class, Russ? And and how many pilots do you think that you're going to need in the next several months to meet that demand of, of 2022? So what what is the company's plans on that? All right, that's another great question. And I'm, I'm excited to say that we have been we've been fast, fast, fastly hiring people. I mean, it's it's remarkable the number of people have interest coming to Endeavor. And I really think that's some of the culture that our pilots have helped create. Um, and the professionalism and the reputation that's been established by our employees at Endeavor, because people want to come here. Um, I can tell you that we started with 13 pilots in April, 2023 in in May, um, 48 in June, 48 in July, and we'll put 54 into class in August. Um, Our goal is right now, the latest ones are all going to the 900 and the 54. Our goal was to get 54 hires in the 900 a month by August. So August, September, all the way through the end of the year, we will see 54 people a month starting. So you've already actually handed out conditional job offers. We already have classes full through February right now. Okay. Do you expect those pilots to actually hold on to that CJO, or do you believe that they may take a earlier job offer from a competitor? That is, um, that is something we're watching very closely. We are maybe losing. We've maybe lost a dozen. But if you take a dozen compared to the four or five hundred people that are sitting out there with with CJOs right now, it's a manageable number. We were losing that before with close in just because people have been waiting for pilot jobs Mm -hmm. throughout the entire pandemic. So right now there's not a pilot shortage, but as an industry as a whole, there's still a pilot shortage. It's just that there's a lot of people backlogged, a lot of students, a lot of other people. I mean, Compass, um, Express Jet, other airlines went away. So, you know, if you take a look at that and uh, there's a lot of pilots right now and and we're we're filling classes. If we see where we start losing people because of the weight, um, we will look at other opportunities. And, you know, there's some contractual opportunities for us to raise the bonus Mm -hmm. if we need to up to 20,000. We haven't done so yet. We haven't even had lengthy discussions on doing so yet because the data just doesn't support it at this time. But if that happens, it's it's a phone call you'll get from me and and we'll we'll talk about it. Um, I can tell you that we're also targeting some of our recruiting. We're out, out in the universities full-fledged right now do, with our STEP program, really recruiting people in to sign up and become a STEP student so they, they come to – first of all, we've never had a STEP student flunk out of training. They just, they're just 
they're very good students and very good aviators when they come in here and want to learn how to be a commercial pilot. So we've been very successful with that. So what we're also doing is taking a look. If we don't have any classes open till February, we're looking right now and interviewing people that are graduating in December who won't have the hours till February or March so that it's in line with their plans. So um, that's a, you can't fill a class with that, obviously, but that's one of our strategic initiatives to make sure we're, we're trying to pair people to classes that they're most ready for and recruit people that way. Yeah, because we're seeing the pilot labor market. As you said, there there is a surplus of pilots right now, especially because Compass Transstates and Express Jet, you know, went down during the pandemic. So there is a surplus of pilots, but I, I agree with your perspectives, Russ. Overall, there is still a shortage. Yes. And there is there's still absolutely going to be a demand. And I think what we're starting to see right now is everybody is starting to get into the avenues to try to attract pilots to their carrier. Um, I think Republic might have just been the carrier that upped their bonus to 17 or 18,000. I think uh, GoJet and SkyWest both have longevity restoration. Um, so if you have former 121 time, you know it could be a very attractive option to walk in there on 10-year pay um, and get 10-year 401 and 10-year pay rates and 10-year uh, vacation. Um, it seems like we're doing all sorts of things to attract pilots in, in different ways. But here at Endeavor, um, you know what we're seeing is that we have the $10,000 bonus. And like you said, we may very well up that to 20. Um, personally, I don't know that that's going to be enough. I think you're probably going to have to do something else. And I think one of the things that is great that we just accomplished right now is the flow program. But what kind of hampers it is the fact that it doesn't apply to new hires. So can we talk a little bit about what the company's plan might be on that? Yeah, Nick, great question again. Um, I, first of all, I want, I, want to, I want to talk about the flow program first, okay? Um, I, I want to reiterate um, how much the company appreciates the MEC and your leadership because the flow program was something we, we've been dreaming about and wanting for, for a long, long time. And uh, under your leadership and the MEC, we got this thing done. So now we have 1,800 plus pilots that all have a guaranteed job at Delta. Um, we want that for our new hires as well. Okay. Um, you know, we've had some preliminary discussions regarding a CAP program, career advancement program. It's something that you... Um, actually put the paper early um, and we've sort of adopted it and made some changes and we're still working on that. I think the company and, and, and the MEC and the negotiating committee and yourself will, will probably sit down in the future and start working on that and really, really finalizing that. Um, the reason that we haven't done so immediately is we want to see what happens with this arbitration mm -hmm. because depending on the result of the arbitration, um, it could decide what group, if we're talking about all the groups, we're talking about new hires, to be honest with you. So I think it's real important that, that it's our goal, and, and I know it's the MEC's goal and your goal, to get a career advancement program for all pilots, even the new hires. Um, and I think we'll get it. I really do. I, I feel confident we will. I think we need that to attract pilots long term. We also have to ensure that we have a footprint here that is not too long. Yeah, I think the market is pushing us in that mm -hmm. direction. It is. You know, it's, it's definitely driving us. And, you know, um, one of the things that I think the pilots should kind of, we should kind of refresh their memories on is this career advancement plan. It's essentially a guaranteed and contractual model, but it does have a few more gates. Like one of the things that the company introduced was this idea of a service requirement, you know, a certain amount of time at Endeavor, a certain amount of time as a captain, um, you know, not having any active discipline or not having any active attendance or reliability issues. And that doesn't cover everything that was in there, but certainly those are, those are some of the things that were in there and some of the things that are very reasonable. Um, and I think that we could, uh, we could agree to. So, yeah, I think in order to be competitive in this market, we are going to have to be in the kind of defined plan. Cause just like you're taking the step student and showing them a natural transition, yep. we need to show that for our current 121 pilots, a natural transition to the carrier that they're serving. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think uh, there are some gates or some hurdles in there. Um, none of them are insurmountable. Um, they're all objective, not subjective, which is I think is is, is was always my goal and your goal mm -hmm. to ensure it was an objective process. It would also be a situation when when someone came in the door, they would know from day one what they needed to do to get to Delta. There's no there's no hidden method or hidden paths. This is what you do, and you go to Delta, plain and simple, um, in this time frame. And I think that's where we want to get on a cap program. And I think uh, I, we have to have that to remain competitive from, from an industry standpoint. Um, I know that some other carriers are having trouble right now hiring. Um, I won't name names, but I can tell you we've been picking up a lot of flying for them recently in the, in the Delta brand. Um, they're really struggling getting pilots. They canceled 15 flights uh, day before yesterday um, for lack of crews. 
Um, so it's real important that we stay ahead of the curve. Well, yeah, I think you know we've worked well enough together, and we and and the company and Alpa and and the union have a very good working relationship. We we disagree at times, which is fine, and we all agree to disagree. But I think we have a mutual respect, and and our mutual respect is tied to a good outcome for our employees. I think we both want to ensure our pilots have and get what they need and that there's an opportunity for them. I mean, I can see a cap program where a person comes here and four years later they're at Delta. And that's what we want to get to is a 48-month total. Can you imagine just coming to regional for 48 months and you automatically go to the best mainline carrier in the country? Yeah. Arguably. No, that is that's a that's a great that is a great plan. And I think we share that vision and share that goal. And, you know, I will say, don't worry too much about not wanting to name that carrier. We have some of our pilots that live on TravelNet, <laughs> literally live on TravelNet, and they can tell you very quickly or post on Facebook exactly what carriers uh, are being affected right now. So I think we all know who we're, we're talking about there. Um, you know, Russ, like coming back to what you just said, though, we do share this vision. We we both understand that in order for a flow program to be effective as a retention tool and as acquisition tool, first, it has to apply to new hires, which this one doesn't. Hopefully, there'll be some opportunities to change that in the future. And I agree with you. I, th I think there's going to be. But the second thing is it's got to be a retention tool, right? Yep. And in order for it to be a good retention tool, you have to be able to move meaningful numbers. In 20, you know, it's a great start, but it doesn't get you anywhere close to four years. So how do we bridge that gap? And that's what we're working on right now, Nick. That's all the effort and all the things. I know I know you're having a lot of discussions with Doug Hadley regarding training and so forth, and we're looking at different ways we can do training, different ways to identify ADPs or APDs and, and PCPs. Um, for us to, to, to be competitive, we realize that right now we need to hire. We're going to be at set. We're trying to get to 70 a month um, by January 1. There's a slight chance I could get 70 in November, December, but we've locked in 54 already. Um, a month, but by January, we want to be at 70. Have you, have you not locked 70 in just because of the training limitations? Is yes. That, okay. Because I want, what I, what I have to do is right now I'm training trainers. All right. And every month we do a look back to make sure we're on schedule for those, um, FTIs to be developed. So at the end of every month we evaluate that. And as long as we're still on track, then I can go ahead and commit to HR to say, Hey, go ahead and bring in 54, which is what they did in August for me. Um, and I can, I want to go to 70. That's the goal. 70 will get us to where we need to, to meet block hours next in, in June of 22, um, Delta's needs. I need to maintain 70 long-term and then I can look at moving more people. If I, if I'm moving 20 a month, I would like to move more than that. I'd like to move 30 or 40, but to do that, I need to hire people. And then I also need to stop losing people to other airlines. Um, and that's real important to us. So we're looking very closely at, at who we're losing. If I quit, if I can start pushing more pilots to Delta sooner, I will lose fewer pilots to the Jet Blues and them of the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have a mainline offer at United or, or you're going to you're going to go with yeah. your mainline. But to lose to Jet Blue and Spirit and Sun Country, I, I can't even imagine what people are thinking. Maybe they think four years or five years is too long. But that's why there's an incentive for the company to work with the union closely to make sure we can bring in enough pilots and train them so we can have enough outward movement. Because people want to come here and not just move on to Delta. They want to be able to come here and upgrade quickly, too. Mm -hmm. So we want to be in a position where when they hit the 1,000 hours or the 1,200 hours, they're upgrading. It's not a three-, four-year upgrade. It's an 18- to two-month, two-year upgrade. And that's really what our goals are. And I know working with you and the, and the MEC has been excellent. Um, we're we're going to continue to work on those things, but we're working these plans and models every single day. And they change, believe it or not, every single day. Things change in the airline environment? No. <laughs> Imagine. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought up attrition. Um, you know, we were talking about that earlier in the show before you got here, Russ. You know, in May, we saw 23 pilots walk out the door. In June, we saw 27. And in July, there seems to be an indication that we're going to be well north of 30. And we haven't even hit a flow month. No, you know? you're right. But keep in mind, um, we anticipate that. All those were done. One of the things we did do this summer, we had 27, or was it 27 or 32? I can't remember. Um, CJO holders mm -hmm. um, from the old DGI program. Um, so we wanted to honor those. So we did send 14 of those in July. And we're planning attrition at 30 a month right now. Um, so we're going to be right at that for July. The ones that concern me, again, aren't the FedEx, aren't the UPS, it's, it's JetBlue. We, I think we lost six to JetBlue. Uh, I, I, I don't understand that. But um, uh, well, I, th I think when, if I look at the seniority list, the odd thing is a lot of them are FOs. Well, I think if I could put some color commentary on it, when you take a look at, 
it depends upon what your goals are as a pilot, right? Mm -hmm. If your goal is to go wide body international, maybe a Spirit or a JetBlue doesn't make sense. But when you take a look at their domestic contracts, um, especially with all of the work that those MECs have done uh, as of the last two or three years, they can be every bit as lucrative or close to every bit as lucrative as a mainline carrier. So it's not just Delta competing with the JetBlues and the Spirits of the world. It's still going to be the Uniteds and the Americans and everyone else. Um, I agree with you that eventually, you know, if you want to go to one of those properties, even from a Spirit or a JetBlue, you're still going to be able to make that transition. And we see that all the time. Um, but, I, you know, we definitely need to find ways to keep people here and retain people yep. here. Quicker upgrades, better quality of life, easy commutes, guaranteed job in a reasonable amount of time. Those are the mechanisms that are yep. going to do it. And I think we're on the same page there. Yeah. We recognize that. Absolutely. So, you know, speaking of this, these attrition numbers and these modelings, um, Pilot Group knows that the company is planning a three-month holdback uh, per the terms of our flow agreement. And it seems as if they're going to do it in perpetuity. I mean, you're just kind of kind of play rolling thunder. You're always going to be three months behind. But is can you envision any scenario in which we actually get caught up? That's another good question. Uh, we've done the, done the math. I, I do not see a scenario before the end of 22 or the be first half of 23 before we get caught up. Um, that doesn't mean the numbers wouldn't increase from 20. Um, we'll always look to send more if we can because it's in our best interest. But the reason we're holding back is because Delta's wanted us to fly more block hours than was planned. And now we can't fly what they want because we're short pilots and I mean, the truth is Delta's going to be hiring a lot of pilots also. So they're short pilots as well right now. Um, some of the other DCI carriers are short pilots. So not everybody can fly the block hours that Delta needs to fly. Delta's wanting to capture as much of the market share right now as ever before. And this is an, a prime time to do it. To do so, if we hold everybody back, it allows us to three more months of flying. We're literally, we're literally. So to get caught up, I mean, I, I see it in perpetuity, to be honest with you. No, Once you fine. sign up for the three months, it's three months. And I think it's a good thing for the pilots. I mean, you, you walk in the door and you already have three months of seniority. Um, and that shortens your probationary period and everything at Delta. So I think it's a good thing. Um, and uh, this is not a bad place to work. And it'd be different if it, if Endeavor was, wasn't was a, a class act with great pilots. Uh, you wouldn't want to work here. But uh, our pilots hanging back three months, it lets them get... They're making three months more money at a higher rate as a captain sure. pay than when they start there. So it's a win-win for both, I really believe. But I don't see it. I see us maybe adding more, but I don't ever see us catching up. I think every every new class will be held back, whether it's 30 or, or 20 in that class, held back the three months. So with wanting to hit 70 by the turn of the year, and, and obviously we have the hiring numbers to be able to do that today. We just don't have the training bandwidth to do that today. With wanting to hit 70, but still modeling only about 30 on the attrition, even if it was 30 to other carriers plus an additional 20 in a flow, you're still net positive, right? So that indicates to, I think, the pilots that there are some growth plans. Are there any growth plans here at Endeavor? Yes, obviously, you know, there's um, there, there's several dual class aircraft that are tied up in the, in the current... Uh, arbitration dispute between Delta and uh, Delta's MEC. Um, those planes, a portion of those 35 would come here. There's an opportunity for some other airplanes also. Um, so we want to continue to grow. But but the real thing is we want to get our block hours and our utilization back up because we used to run about 11.2 on the dual class a day per aircraft, 11.2 hours. We're around the 9, 8, 10, 2 range. And that's the most we can do right now with our pilots. So while we want to fly more airplanes, we also realize we need to utilize the ones we have better. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. So our number one goal is to is improve um, the productivity and get get our, our average block hours per aircraft back up to where they were pre-COVID numbers. Which was about 1.2 to 1.4 higher than we're seeing now. Yep. But what did it actually fall down to in the height of the pandemic? We were five something on the 200s yeah. and seven something on the 900s. Yeah, so it's a marked improvement. And it's I think almost, almost twice as much. I think the pilots are experiencing that in the schedule qualities and efficiencies. But as we've said, there's still more work to be done on that front. There's a lot more work to be done. So speaking of schedule quality, and this is going to bring. I mean, let me just sure. add to that if I may. Go right I'm ahead. sorry to no, interrupt no. you, Nick. Keep in mind that New York, while it's coming back, is still not back where it was in the dual class. Um, and so that is a little off balance because we're mm -hmm. still commuting people or TDYing people or deadheading them out of New York to pick up trips. 
which isn't as efficient as we want to be or need to be. Pilots don't like it either. So as New York continues to come back in the fall, I think you're going to see a more normalization with the crews and the schedules will get better and so forth. So that's our goal. Well, speaking of schedules, um, one of the domiciles that we hear most often from and have uh, in the past is Cincinnati, because we have a plethora of really early starts and really, really late finishes. And unfortunately, uh, Cincinnati, I think the plan for it was very different uh, pre-COVID than the network plan is post-COVID. Pre-COVID, it sounded like it was going to grow significantly from the size that it is today. Right now, it seems as if Cincinnati is probably going to stay status quo. And there's there's really kind of a level of uncertainty as to the future of Cincinnati. And right now, from an, uh, you know, an association's perspective, you know, are these pilots better served in other positions, speaking of deadheading in and out and having resource allocations in the most efficient domiciles? Um, you know, so can you talk a little bit about what the company sees the future of Cincinnati to be? Nick, I get the same questions about Cincinnati on a regular basis. I can tell you that uh, at this point, there's no plans to eliminate Cincinnati as a crew base. We'll continue to have it as a dual-class crew base. Um, the growth and additional flying for Cincinnati is still in question. Um, I don't have a time frame on where we can expect that to grow. I think we will see it grow some, probably not to the level we initially expected. But with Cincinnati being our largest maintenance base for RONs, I and mean, we have a lot of RONs there, um, it's, it's still viable for us to maintain a small crew base there. So I don't see that changing. Now, having said that, you know, you know, you know how things change. But at this point, I can tell you there's been no discussions whatsoever about closing Cincinnati. Well, yeah, I mean, things change because Cincinnati lost its focus city mm -hmm. designation by Delta. And, you know, again, just kind of looking at how small it's remained. I mean, we, we don't even have long call reserve lines on the FO side. And, you know, a lot of people saw this latest vacancy with 75 FOs. And, you know, the knee jerk reaction is, oh, are we? potentially growing. But then you look on the captain's side and there's no vacancies. And and really, I know that's just the company's concern about having a training churn as people bid out of Cincinnati. So, uh, you know, it definitely is something that as an association, we're going to encourage you guys to continue to look at because it it is right now our least desirable base. And there doesn't seem to be a good solid footprint for a lot of growth and a lot of great opportunities there. Yeah, I think um, I think for the remainder of this year, most of 22 Cincinnati will be static with some minor improvements. But I think um, still yet to be seen what Delta's long-term plan is. I think you could see more regional flying in Cincinnati and less mainline flying, which would mean an increase to us. Um, I also think some of the positioning on some of the other planes, there are some uh, one or two Republic flights that go in out of their day, and they do that for, for positioning to other locations. I think that, that could change, come back to us. I just think uh, we won't really be able to see the true, the true picture of Cincinnati until probably in 23, to be honest with you, Nick. Okay. So let's switch gears, Russ. You know, we've talked about uh, the hiring plans. We've talked about the bonus, the flying demand, the efficiencies, some attrition, growth, training department issues. But, you know, the one thing that we haven't talked about is safety. And I want to spend some time talking about safety because while all of the things that we're talking about are extremely exciting, uh, you and I are both lockstep and barrel because we know that we need to run a safe operation to begin with. You know, performance numbers are nice, but we got to run a safe operation. So can you kind of talk to us about uh, some of the safety pitches or safety trends that we're seeing that need to be addressed um, in the near future? Yeah, um, I would love to do that because um, to quote Ryan Gum, for those that remember Ryan, Ryan used to say, if you're not safe, you're not in the game. And um, I, I, I can't reiterate that safety has to be our priority day in and day out. And I want to reiterate to all of our pilots, anytime you see something unsafe, raise your hand, stop. All right, you have the authority to stop anytime you want. And when you do say stop, you'll have our, we'll have your back because safety should always be your priority. So if there's something you see or question, don't be afraid to stop because that is our priority. The other thing that we've seen in some of our trend data um, that's been somewhat alarming to me is, is you know, we had a, we had a, a, a rash of hard landings, um, I would say about a year ago, and we attacked that through through many different methods, some some stuff in training as well as uh, information from safety. Alpa helped us on that front as well, and we you know, we reevaluated how we, we did landings on, on the dual class in particular, and we were able to reduce that. Um, recently, we've seen a couple stick shaker situations, um, and um, those are always alarming. Uh, we, we do upset recovery training um, as mandated by the FAA. We have a very good training program, and upset recovery does an excellent job. But these, um, these situations are very, um, un, not, not alike by any means is the best way I could describe. But there is one commonality. What we've seen a lot of lately is pilot monitoring errors. And I just want to reiterate, pilot monitoring is just as important as pilot flying, if not more so. 
Um, and it's not a pilot watching or a pilot a relaxing um, mode. It's a pilot monitoring, which means I really ask all of you to think about that role and how important it is. Step in, jump in. Don't be afraid to say something. The pilot monitoring is supposed to keep the pilot flying aware of everything going on around the flight deck, period. And I've seen the areas that we've seen have been more related to pilot monitoring than pilot flying. Yeah, and this kind of reminds me of something that you told me that uh, Jim Graham said when he was um, doing jump seat rides. In fact, Jim routinely does uh, jump seat rides to get to know the crews and get to know the Endeavor operation. And I think the he's had a tremendous amount of compliments for all of our pilots from the way that we operate, how safely we operate, um, our performance, uh, our announcements, our MPS scores. He has a lot of really positive things to say. I think the only criticism he's ever levied is, you know, your first officers need to slow down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And first officers obviously certainly aren't the only pilot monitors up there. Captains are as well. Um, but it is important that we stay engaged with the operation, no matter what seat that we're in and no matter what role that we're playing. And we make sure that we're methodical in our approach. Um, everybody likes to get things done quickly to show the other pilot uh, and sometimes even show themselves, hey, I really got this down and I know the operation. But that can also lead to a lot of mistakes. So make sure that you're watching out for that and, and being on guard with that. What else? Yeah, I just I just want to add on to that. Um, you're absolutely right, Jim. Every time Jim has an opportunity to fly in a flight deck, he does, and uh, and he always comes back and gives me the most wonderful feedback. I think um, I think him coming here and and flying in our flight decks uh, allowed him to see the professionalism and how well we do fly our aircraft and we do fly them like Delta. I remember years ago we changed the checklist and everything to be very similar to Delta, and there was a reason behind that. But most of all, the comment about the FOs is is he's, he, he wants the FOs to remember to slow down, take your time, because you don't have to prove you know it by going mm -hmm. fast through it. If anything, going fast causes you to miss things. And it, there's nothing wrong with slowing down and taking your time. And and that's what he's told me to tell you. Know, you and I have had this conversation. Yeah. He's, he's expressed that for me to share that with the pilots, too, that um, slowing down, taking a breath and and thinking about things calculatedly versus rushing through to show you know what to do, uh, it's much more important to take your time. Well, and it's great advice from somebody that has uh, an abundance of experience. Yes. You know, yes. absolutely. So, Russ, that kind of, uh, you know, covers a, a wealth of information. Is there any other kind of general topics that uh, we haven't covered or you want to let the pilots know about? Yeah, thinking of, of, of several, Nick, I'd like to share. One of the things that's near and dear to my heart are FCRs, and uh, that's flight crew reports. And the reason they are is when I first took the job, I can remember we were packing up Memphis, moving down here or moving up here, and there was these two huge boxes full of paper. And I remember asking someone on the, in the flight ops department, "What are these?" They said, "Those are FCRs." And I said, "What are FCRs?" They said, "Those are flight crew reports. Flight crew members send in information when they when something they see or you know happens on the line, um, they bring it to our attention." And I said, "What well, what do we do with them?" And they said, oh, "We just throw them in this box and then we just save them." And I said, "You know." Our pilots are eyes and ears. We can't be there with them 24-7. They can't be with us. And they see and do more things on the line than we can ever see from an office. So we turned around and made the FCR program about seven years ago. We turned it over into a program that we responded to. For instance, when you send an FCR, you will get a response that was received within 72 hours. No, within 24 hours. You'll get a follow-up on that FCR within 72. Um, FCRs are very important. And um, I look at the trend on FCRs every single week. They're all tracked by data. They're logged in. I can tell you who sends them, who doesn't, what locations have problems, what the number top 10 issues are without the, throughout the system. This information is huge. It allows us to address the pilot's concerns and allows us to better serve our customers, to be honest with you. But the reason I want to talk about it, and, and I want to thank all of you who send FCRs because they are important, and we literally research every single one of them. But it also gives us the ammunition and the information to go back and, and, and drive change. These FCRs do drive change. Um, we'll go to Delta and meet with them and say, look at all these FCRs regarding this subject matter in this location. And it will get the attention to fix it as it needs. I know that there's, so that really I want to thank you for, for doing the FCRs. But I'm going to transition to another point I just want to share with you. Um, I have seen an increased amount of concern and frustration over some of the ground operations this summer in a lot of our bases, a lot of our stations, and even our hubs. I, I'm not going to make excuses for any of it. There's no way to make an excuse for it. I can tell you that Delta is extremely short-staffed. 
Um, they hired 2,000 people just for summer in Atlanta. So imagine bringing in 2,000 ramp people who've never worked the ramp before and turning them loose within a month. Um, it's overwhelming. I see cities like Cedar Rapids are short-staffed right now. There's several. Um, Delta's working at it diligently. Understand that we knew going into the summer there were going to be some operational challenges with ACS and ground personnel. There's just a shortage of them. Um, Delta's even taken some of the, the southern locations like, like um, Montgomery, Albany, Georgia. They are offering $25 an hour to start on the ramp, and they're still having trouble filling positions. Um, I think if any of us drive around our cities, you'll see all the people that have looking for hire. Um, for some reason, there just aren't enough people to fill yeah, jobs right now. It's enormous. And uh, the airlines are dealing with the same thing. So I, I, I'm not making any excuses. I just want to thank all of you for sending the FCRs. Keep them coming. We're, we're a lot, it allows us to see where the issues are in real time and address it in real time. But I also want to thank you for your patience as we're going through the summer. And we're actually growing this airline. It's, it's, grown, it's grown back both Delta and Endeavor to a level that we didn't expect for this summer. We expected it for next summer. Um, so I, I know that has caused issues where you're waiting to be parked, waiting for cleaners, waiting for this, waiting for that, waiting to be unloaded, waiting for carry-ons. Um, I know there's been times we're waiting for wheelchairs, and I know that I've had pilots who have actually wheeled the wheelchair themselves, and I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. That means a lot to me because it tells me you're focused on the customer um, and you're focused on our reputation, even when it's not out of, when it's out of our control because there's a staffing issues or something like that. So I thank for all your hard work this summer. Um, this is a tough summer, um, but you can see that the, the public has come back in droves. And I also want to thank you for supporting your flight attendants. I know you do that on a regular basis. Um, the mask policy is, is challenging. Right now, you basically don't have to wear a mask anywhere except in an airport and on an airplane. That's a tough thing. I mean, we see two or three gate returns or air returns every day because of mask issues. So I appreciate you supporting the, the flight attendants on that. And I know you guys deal with uh, a lot of those challenges as well. So I thank you for taking care of the customer and and continuing to, to fly safe. That's real important. But I want to hit on the FCRs. I want to hit on staffing. Or uh, Delta's working on the staffing. It's just uh, it's hit and miss all over, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think from a pilot perspective, Russ, the hard thing with the FCRs is, you know, we we love getting you that data. And I know that you and the rest of the executives read every single FCR. And I know that you take action. But what we see is a lot of cyclicality that comes out of these ground crews. A, a Something might improve for a period of time, and then it regresses, and then it improves, and then it regresses. And I think some of the frustration that the pilots get is, okay, we've sent you the data. We've sent you the data two times, three times, four times over the course of many, many years. And there just seems to be this ebb and flow as to how the quality that we're continuing to get. And, you know, I will use Detroit as an example because I'm based there. Um, it got so bad recently that they took the Delta um, ground services people, and they moved them over to the BC concourse. Do you know why that happened? Why did that happen? Because, because of, of FCRs. FCRs? I'm dead sure. serious. And Patricia and I worked hard on that. Remember, there was a contract um, for Unify to work the below wing. All right? They have a contract for those gates. They couldn't staff it. Sure. And so the FCRs showed how many times planes were waiting. We started tracking it on the end times, and our end times were growing. Planes weren't getting parked. Planes weren't getting serviced. We'd take the FCRs, Patricia, the hub director, would take them to the Delta morning briefs with the VP of the hub there for Delta. And finally, they said, you know, we got to do something. So they, they did put some Delta employees on B. And it got a lot better. But, you know, our concern is always it gets better for a period of time, but then it just regresses right back to what it was. And I think what our pilots are looking for is just one permanent fix, because maybe we're not seeing um, the same things that you're seeing. But it seems like the B.C. concourse specifically in Detroit, but I know other carriers as well, always seems to kind of go through this period of it's a mess where it doesn't seem to happen on the A side. That always seems to be a well-run no, operation. No, the A numbers are much better than the BC numbers. We so know that we track them. what can we do just in general when we see that to make that permanent fix? Um, the obvious fix would be if Mainline worked A, B, and C. Okay, that would be the obvious fix. Um, from an economical standpoint, it's not the best fix right now. I think as time goes on and it becomes more difficult to hire, um, Delta has authorized Unify to raise their wages. It's going to reach a point where those wages are close enough to mainline wages where it changes. I don't know if you remember, but it wasn't that long ago when ASA was in, Ad in Atlanta and they worked all the below wing for the D.C. and mainline worked all the above wing. And 
it got to the point where it just wasn't acceptable anymore. And they, they couldn't see a light at tunnel and mainline took over all below wing in Atlanta. Um, I would hope someday maybe we get that way in Detroit. I can tell you for the first time they did have mainline employees over on B, um, and it made a difference. There's data that shows that. Um, I think the last hope to try to save the, the contract with Unify in, the, in Detroit is allowing them to hire at a higher wage and see if that ha- happens. But to be honest, if anyone's from Detroit, you know that you have Amazon right across the way hiring at 16 bucks an hour, okay? And Unify was hiring at 10 bucks an hour. And Amazon, you're not in the weather, you're not in the rain, you're not in the snow, you're not in the sun. Um, so you got to get more competitive or you got to look at a different business model. Nope. And I think well Delta's said. looking at that. Good. Nope. I think that was some really good information, Russ. Um, I think that about wraps up our time. Russ, I want to say once again, not just thank you for joining us on the podcast, but thank you for all your service uh, here at Endeavor. You are one of the largest reasons why we have been so successful and we've got great labor uh, management relationships. And I'd also like to personally thank you for all your help over the years, not just on the flow agreement, but you know, many, many of the other agreements that we've been able to achieve. We've been able to achieve them because we keep open lines of communication and we're all driven to solve problems. And as we solve problems, we're able to benefit the pilots. And that's that's our goal here on the Alpha side. And you've been a big advocate of that. And I really appreciate it, sir. Thank you, Nick. Uh, again, I want to reiterate, um, it's, it's a privilege to sit here and talk with all of you today. Um, I've always taken the philosophy that you none of the pilots or, or anyone works for me, I work for you. And my job is always serving you, and um, it's been an honor and a privilege, and I, and, and I, I hope I get to do this for a lot longer. Um, Endeavor Pilots are the best there is, plain and simple. And uh, the airline you've built and all the employees have built is, is a phenomenal thing that we all should be proud of. But, uh, you know, in 2013 when I took the job, labor relations wasn't that good. It really wasn't. It left a lot to be desired. And we realized there was a lot more to be gained for our pilots by working together than working against one another. Um, and that's hard because it means you have to learn to trust. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I, I vividly and, and honestly trust you. And I feel like I hope you guys can trust me because what I say I try to do, um, I try to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. But I know our pilots do it every day. And I just want to give another shout out to all of you out there. Thank you for doing a wonderful job. Um, your consummate professionals. Um, I admire and um, respect each and every one of you, and I'm always here if you need anything. And I hope, Nick, you'll invite me back sometime. Hey, Russ, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it, uh, sir. Thank you, Nick. Take care. So what we like to do at the end of each episode is we like to answer a question from the front line. Unfortunately, we didn't receive any submissions uh, this month. So just as a reminder, if you'd like to submit a question to be read online uh, or on the air, and if we select your question, we will send you a, a gift from the MEC, please email us at edvonair at alpa.org. That's edvonair at alpa.org. Now, just because we didn't receive a submission um, doesn't mean that we're not going to answer a hot button topic that we have actually seen a lot of questions come through the darts recently on, and that has to do with vacations. Um, and this is something that's, that comes up from time to time. Some pilots out there fail to participate in the annual vacation bid, or they fail to get all of their vacation weeks that are allotted to them placed onto the grid uh, because they didn't bid for enough weeks and their seniority couldn't hold the weeks that they had bid for. And one of the things that pilots really need to remember is that if you fail to put it on the grid, unless there is a certain circumstance, and those circumstances are uh, defined in, in Section 7K of the JCBA, uh, if you don't place it on the grid before the end of the year, you will lose that vacation. The, the company is not under an obligation to pay you out for that, again, except in limited circumstances. So it's very important that during the annual vacation bid, you take advantage of that and make sure you put those vacation weeks on the grid. You can always participate in the early bid of each month and move those vacation weeks to something that's a little bit more desirable or conducive to your vacation schedule, but make sure you at least put them on the grid. Uh, Remember too, that if you change domiciles, not equipment, just domiciles, so you stay either in the 900 or you stay in the 200 and you go from Detroit to Atlanta or Atlanta to Mini or Mini to Cincy, 
you will still retain your vacation, your originally awarded vacation. That does not have any bearing on that. Um, however, if you change equipment or seats, then it will have an effect on your vacation. So also be mindful of that when you're bidding, be mindful of that when you're potentially changing equipment or changing seats um, and make sure you review uh, 7k to make sure that you, uh, you are covered. So we see that quite a bit and I wanted to make sure that we covered that with you. The other thing that we're trying to cover it with more regularity is the contract corner or contract questions. You'll see a lot of EBBs or even in the Friday hotlines, uh, little pieces about contract corners. Um, just to kind of give you guys some more information on some of these hot button items. So make sure you check out the uh, the Friday hotlines and the EBBs for more information such as this. Well, that's all we have uh, for today's show. I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun having Russ Lander join us. Once again, fly safe and be safe out there, and we will see you out on the line. Take care, everyone. 31, runway 28, quit land. 